You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I am Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. Welcome back. I'm glad you could join us this week as we discuss the Mothman of Point Pleasant and you guys. This one isn't quite as good as Bray Road Beast. I'll admit I had high expectations. <laughs> so it's an hour and seven minutes long. I found this on Amazon. Directed by Seth Breedlove, who also did Bray Road Beast. And narrated by Lyle Blackburn, who also narrated Black er, Bray Road Beast. Those two seem to write and produce together quite a bit. They're a team. They're a team. I do dig the stories they do, though, kind of, I mean, it's, they're the crypto guys, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and Lyle Blackbird does have a great voice for narrating. I'll give him that. He really does. I liked this one. I think that the reenactments, because there were several. They were like cartoon versions, right? Yeah, but I think that they were a little bit better than the one in Bray Road Beast. Like, at least, in my opinion, they weren't great still, but they were better. I don't know if it was just the subject matter was easier or what, but I thought that they were a little bit higher quality. So I appreciated that about this one, but it left me with a lot of questions about this whole story. I don't know that I have a lot of questions. I will say that I was looking at IMDb and everyone will be happy to know that the Mothman was played by himself. There were no actors involved, no rubber costumes, just him appearing as himself. So that made me happy. Which really makes it sound like he's like interviewed, but it's not really right. the case. It's you know right. he's he's really just there in in thought and hope as at the in best spirit. part. Yeah, yeah. I think the interesting thing about this is there's an actual tragedy that's involved with this, right? And so I guess maybe that's what makes this one so enduring. I believe it can be. I think, and they kind of talk about it at the end how they got connected. Which is really interesting to me because I, people want to make connections. People want to see things and they want to go back and look back after the fact and say, oh, of course this, or of course that, right? Yes. Um, We like to put reason and predictability into like completely random things. Like we want to feel like we have some control over that. And to me, that's where this whole thing comes from. But who's to say? So This is really talking about the 13 months of terror for Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and sort of all over that region on the Ohio River, mostly. There are lots of different sightings. We'll try to talk about the highlights of those. I mean, there were an extreme amount of sightings. I don't know how else to say it. More than we could report on here. I mean, it would take us literally longer than the actual documentary, which we have already promised ourselves we will not do. We're trying, guys. Right, right. So we talked to a guy named Denny Bellamy. He's the executive director of the Mason County Tourism Board, and he is sort of the one who does a little bit of, not narration, but he shows up quite a bit through this documentary. He starts off talking about Point Pleasant is a town of about 5,000 residents. Um, The whole town is about three miles long, and this is mostly a rural area with some industrial 
complexes, some places to work. So, I mean, I think this is pretty par for the course for small town. I mean, it's, I would not call this the Midwest per se, but this is reminiscent of places that I grew up. You know what I mean? Like they had two big factories and then everybody else kind of worked around that or they drove to the big towns. So yeah, that's that kind of vibe is very familiar to me. So I'm like, okay, yeah, sweet. I'm down with that. I do always love the fact that they're talking about, well, there's some history in this area. Sounds great. Mm -hmm. They do know that there's a mass Native American grave at the McClintock Wildlife Area, which that place really seems to have seen some things other than just a mass grave. So a couple of the local tribes back in the day, the Shawnee and the uh, Mingo, kind of joined efforts to attempt to halt the colonialism at a battle called the Battle of Point Pleasant. Evidently a bit of a slaughter here as they were ultimately defeated and uh, they had to retreat, but really the militia overtook them and I think just took care of the problem in colonialism speak. So there was a gentleman named Chief Cornstalk. He was the principal chief of the Shawnee Nation. So not just the local tribe, but the whole to do. And this is according to his seventh generation granddaughter, who also speaks her name is Lynn Fawn Cornwell. And he was the initial negotiator of the treaties that kind of stopped all the fighting. And then history tells the story that he was kind of lured to a fort or something on the grounds of like, hey, let's rap about this a little bit more. And then they just took him out, him and his son. So bad blood abounds when you just be killing people. I don't know if we're all aware of that, hopefully by now. So Lynn talks a little bit too about the chief had not been thrilled to have to do this fight in the first place. He was not a big fan, but he's like, look, I guess we got to do something because they're just running over us. And then there's sort of a mention that he cursed the area, the town of Point Pleasant. But that came up in a pamphlet for a play that was found in a school closet when they were tearing the school down. But the closet they'd forgotten about. They didn't know it was there. I was like, that's really so really weird. Yes. Dynamic because like what school doesn't know about all available space? Right. Unless it was bricked up all Casper Montiago type, right? I mean, I hope that's the case, but um, so they found the playbill. It had, well, maybe it wasn't a playbill, but it was something like that. I think like it was that. the actual play, like the, the script oh, okay. of the play. And so yeah, there's a mention of in his dying breath, he curses the town for 200 years, but it was never talked about before that play. Lynn was like, and so people just ran with it after that. Like they found it and they're like, well, that must be true. That must be why all these horrible things happen. Yeah. So then he was also blamed for essentially anything that happened that was bad in West Virginia from that point on. It's <laughs> a lot of power that cat's got. Also, does this sound like the type of play that an elementary school should be putting on, I'm just saying, really inappropriate. Well, I guess things were different in 19 and 23. It seems pretty advanced, so I will give you that. Mm -hmm. We meet a guy named Jeff Walmsley, who's also pretty big into this. Uh, Mothman Central, if you will, the Jeff Walmsley. He's an author, he's a teacher, he's the curator of the Mothman Museum, so you know this cat is invested. He talks a little bit about the cursed by Chief Cornstalk. And he basically says, yeah, I mean, all small towns have this. And I was like, that's, I don't know about that. Like, did he come from the Wes Craven school of thought where like, there's just, <laughs> you know what I mean? It just feels yeah. very slasher movie adjacent to mm -hmm. say something like that. 
Well, if it's built on an Indian burial ground, we know what happened. So, I mean, that's sort of the vibe that you're getting from this. Like, yeah, there was a massacre. There was a curse. I mean, this was just foretold or whatever. And I'm like, this is some nice uh, scene setting by you local dudes. I totally appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Our friend Denny, the director of tourism, talks about the old school had been torn down and they find the pageant inside, which is just hilarious to me. And then he talks about some of the different things the chief was blamed for. They had a ton of flooding. They notably mentioned four from 1913 to 1937. They're on the bank of a fucking river and they're surprised by floods. And it's not a creek. It's a river. It's a giant ass river. It's the Ohio <laughs> yes. River. So, and they're like four in what's 1913 to 1937. 24 that's, years. I mean, that's more than once. You know, I mean, it's, it just seems like a lot to be like, oh my God. Yeah. And also they're blaming this cat for cursing them. Shouldn't they blame the person who shot him? That seems like the real culprit to me. Not, not the guy who was being murdered saying, curse you. But it just makes a better story if the chief does it, right? True, true. Um, he's got an axe to grind because he was unfairly moited. Mm -hmm. So when they're talking about this flood, they're talking, they said the funniest thing. They were like, I don't know how many millions of dollars it cost in like untold number of lives. And I'm like, there were records back then. You guys couldn't figure out how many fucking <laughs> people died from these four floods in 24 years. Right. Just so funny to me that the details. And lack thereof. Yeah. So at this point, we see that the Birdman sightings begin. This is 50 years before the famous events in the 1960s, which is the meat of this documentary. So there's a guy named Professor, Professor even, James K. Jones. He's writing The Haunted Valley, and that captures a number of sightings of a large bird with a man's head, and it's about a 12-foot wingspan and dark reddish feathers. So that's one description. I think the man's head is pretty significant. Yeah. Notable, perhaps. <laughs> None of the know. drawings just... that they show show a man's head. So they're talking, there are sightings all along the Ohio River into the 1940s. So again, here we are talking like, this is kind of a big span of time. This is not the famous records, but there is a myth, a lore that's going on in this town. And there begins to be some links to tragedies, although they don't really expound on that per se. No. They say the sightings are said to be a prelude or epilogue to a tragic occurrence. So you might see it before or you might see it after. And I'm like, then it makes no difference. It doesn't matter. It's just there. It has nothing to do with the event. It <laughs> that just doesn't make sense to me how that statement came out of someone's face. Curiously absent on the day of, though. That's what I'm taking away from it. They're like, look, I wasn't even there, man. <laughs> Prove it. Prove right? it. So then we come to the 1960s and there's a new wave of bird sightings. I wrote down that there's the space age anxieties, right? So we've kind of talked about this when we talked about, I think, horror noir, when they were saying that the fears of people kind of start to change when we move into a more space age or like nuclear whatever. And so what people are afraid of is kind of told in different ways, like sightings of shit and newspaper articles and blah, blah, blah. But the space race, and so I think people are starting to be, like, weirded out by new and different things. So, anyway, maybe that drives part of this. Right. Well, I mean, and let's ask, were there any real UFO sightings prior to the space age? I mean, what did they call it then? I mean, just, I don't know. I didn't hear of any, like, unidentified wagon trains or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's probably a little bit. 
spirit wagon train. A little bit <laughs> premature to the 1960s, but nonetheless. <laughs> so on November 1st, 1966, there's a National Guardsman. He reports a sighting over the McClintock Wildlife area of a brown half bird, half man in a tree. And I'm like, well, this is interesting because the last we heard, it was all bird, man head. Mm-hmm. So it's evolving. It's evolving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Scary. So our friend Jeff says on November 11th in some town in West Virginia that I can't read my notes, there are four dudes, they're digging a grave. They sight a huge man flying over the grave site, but then they realized they thought it was a man, but then they realized it was just a bird because it's like, it looked like a bird, but it was as big as a man. But my favorite thing about this whole thing was there's an illustration, just a drawing. And there are five men in the drawing, but they <laughs> specifically mentioned four dudes and again, I'm like, that attention to detail leaves me wanting more, fellas. Right. Why would you take the effort to draw an extra man? Wouldn't you, I mean, it'd be easier to draw one less man if you were going to get it wrong. I totally agree. So I yeah. thought that was funny. And that was reported to the papers and kind of is one of the places where this thing gets kicked off. And I say one of the places because it seems like every sighting is when it first got reported to the paper and that's when things got kicked off. So, yes. They also talk about other things happening around the same time. So they mention a, quote, notorious Flatwoods monster. I'm like, how fucking notorious is it? I've never heard of this thing. Is there maybe these cats also did a documentary on the Flatwoods monster and we have to check that out. I'm hoping we can because I'm very much enjoying (laughs) pulling these apart. Sad but true. (laughs) That was in like the 50s, but also I think they had some in the 60s too. The Mothman and this notorious flatwoods monster often are accompanied with unusual aerial phenomenon so lights in the sky sometimes red eyeballs which could appear as lights i guess we talk to no we don't talk to we hear the voice of merle patridge who is describing his experience this is a recording and he said it started with an electrical disturbance the dog was going like crazy barking in that the TV actually exploded and then the dog ran off into the field. Merle saw red lights in the field. Didn't go investigate. Good job, Merle. Cause some people do in this documentary and you question their sanity and <laughs> the dog was never found again. That was the worst part. I agree. I feel bad for the dog. Although maybe he was like, I'm out. Cause this guy's not coming out in this field for me. Here I am <laughs> doing my job pr- protecting the perimeter and this fucker still inside. It's bullshit. Right. So he talks about the red lights kind of being helicopter-like. So it wasn't like they were close set, like they would be eyes. They were kind of spread out and like swirling about. So it's a little bit different take on the red lights, the red eyes that we'll hear in numerous times as we go here, right? And then we kind of talk about the TNT area of Point Pleasant. So from 1942 to 1945, this was a munitions factory. And it's over 800 or 8,000 acres And now it's the McClintock Wildlife Sanctuary. So this was called the West Virginia Ordnance Works, and it was abandoned after World War II, but it cost $45 million. Did you catch that? I didn't, but that seems like a lot of money back in the 30s, right? To be in production for like three or four years, and then it's just completely abandoned. Right. And then they start dumping chemicals and toxic waste there, which, I mean, that's going to end well, as we know. But then they just give it to the state at some point to use as a wildlife preserve. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> Do you think they helped clean it up first? Or no, they were don't they just have like any 
They just threw a bunch of newspaper over there and it was fine. Yeah, that'll absorb it. But that was one of the situations where I had a lot of questions because I'm like, well, did they clean it up? What kind of chemicals? What are we talking about here? Right. I've heard about the Love Canal. It's horrible. So I assume that if they didn't clean it up, there's a lot of mutated animals out there. Well, I think that adds to the lore of this place, right? Like they know it was a chemical dumping ground, a very fancy chemical dumping ground. Like that couldn't be retooled to make cars or something. I don't know. I'm just saying. I have some criticism of how this was handled, not necessarily the documentary's fault. Right. Well, in the end, it was a tax write-off, I'm sure. So it's, don't worry, they're fine. (laughs) Right, right. So in the 1960s, we heard that the McClintock Wildlife Area was a hangout for teens. They were out there smooching on each other and stuff. Necking. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, sure, because nothing says romance to me. Like a a chemical waste dump. Yeah. That glow is really romantic, you guys. Yeah, it just makes your skin shine. Right. (laughs) So then we talked to a guy named George Dudding. He's a local author and classmate classmate of Stephen and Mary. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know. It's not like I was doing tongue twisters before we got on the radios today on the podcast. Maybe you should have. Maybe you should have. I mean, unique (laughs) New York. Unique New York. Okay, so George Dudding, he's a local author and a classmate of Stephen and Mary Mallett. Also, Roger and Linda Scarberry. So this kind of leads us into one of the bigger sightings, the more famous sightings, right? So two couples in a car, the Mallets and the Scarberries, but I don't believe they were married at the time, or maybe they were. They sound like they were in high school, but I was unclear when they were in high school and when they got married. They could have been in high school and been married. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, and they did that. And later on, you find out someone who was 19, and he was married, and they had a house. And I'm like, what world is this? Anyway, they were probably married already. Okay. So that's what we'll go with. So they were hanging around. It was about 11 p.m., and they were out on the road north of the power plant. They thought they saw a man in the road, and he was about seven foot tall and gray in color. I've never seen a seven foot tall man, gray in color, just on the side of a road at 11 p.m. at night. Like a six foot man, a five foot man, somewhere in the middle, but just that spooky seven foot does you in. Everyone says that this thing, this creature is gray in color. And I think if I saw a man who's gray in color, I would think, get him to the hospital. Clearly he's fucking (laughs) sick. And no one mentions that. They're just like, well, just some rando guy who's gray. That's not normal. That's not normal pallor. I attribute a lot of this to like the squinting and the trying to make out what is my brain telling my eyeballs and like that lag time where you're like, oh, this doesn't make sense to me. So as these folks got closer, wings popped out of this man and the creature hobbled toward the plant. And there's a lot of emphasis on the weird running that the creature's doing to get to the power plant. I'm like, why did the wings pop out if he's just going to run away? Like, why give away all your secrets, Mothman? Thank you. Also, if you have wings, why are you running at all? (laughs) It obviously seemed awkward. You know, did he need clearance for takeoff? I don't think so. I can just say, I have not, I cannot think of an animal that can both run over ground and look non-hobbly, like birds hop and like owls do a very weird run and have big old wings. I just don't think it's possible. So I agree with you, like seems like a waste of energy to hobble across the field when you could just take take off. I counter with the roadrunner. 
Oh, well, does he fly, though? I don't know, but he might have wings. All right. You just said wings. You didn't say fly. You're, you're, thank you for keeping me <laughs> accurate. <laughs> so, of course, they're freaked out. The car takes off towards town. And they mentioned the specific roads, but I didn't really care about that. So I'm not writing that down. So they see it again. And they realize it's chasing them. And they are freaked out and they start driving really fast. They do specifically mention that there's a long straightaway on this road. And I'm like, because if you're doing twists and turns and at 95 miles an hour, your tires must be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's flying over them. Again, they're super freaked out. They do take a turn and lose them at some point because they are able to go to the sheriff and the Athens Messenger, which was one of the local papers. And this is when one of the first big news articles come out, although it has been previously reported is what we've heard. So these kids go, they're talking to the sheriff. So they must have been a freaked out enough to do this or high enough to do that. I'm not really sure which they don't discuss it, but I'm like, damn dirty hippies. Right. So our friend Denny then mentions that there have now been a couple sightings that have been somewhat publicized. All of the townies go out hunting in this TNT area. He mentions specifically like they do in Jaws, like everybody just shows up with a gun. I think it's really funny that at this point they mentioned that people want to know, number one, if we see it, can we shoot it? And if there's more than one, can we take them all out or do we have to like leave one for posterity? I don't know. So. I think that was really funny. And then Jeff comes back in. He says specifically that the traffic was such that the National Guard had to come in and provide some kind of crowd control or road control or some kind of control. So that tells me this was a real, real popular thing to do. So later, I find a lot of these sightings where these people are out in this area all by themselves. I'm like, where's the fucking crowd control people at? Also, all the people that see them are ones that don't have guns and aren't trying to shoot them. So that's interesting. I think the state should have taken advantage of this and sold licenses, hunting licenses for the Mothman. They could have made a good buck off of that. Well, I think we really hit on a lot of the crypto shows that are now on the History Channel or whatever, because I feel like it's all like, I don't know, Bigfoot hunters or whatever. And I'm like, if only they would catch one. You know what I'm saying? Well, then they'd not have a show. I know, I know. So, it's not all sightings of the Mothman. There's all kinds of other shit going on in this town. We talked to a guy named Woodrow Derenberger. We don't talk to him, but we hear the story. Let me say that differently. He is driving from Parkersburg, West Virginia. There's a guy that gets out of a ship that lands in the middle of the road in front of him or around him. This is a guy named Indrid Cold. It's a pretty famous encounter, so if you're into UFOs or whatever, it's got a little bit of telepathy because the guy's communicating. Like, this is a humanoid situation. It looks like a man, very, very smiley from the descriptions. Yeah, in the documentary. So there's a real sense of otherness about him, according to the man who's reporting this. But he looks like a human, more or less. So... This is a great example of all of the other weird shit that's going down in this area. And this intracoal situation has kind of endured because he shows up in other stories, which I think is pretty interesting. So it's a little bit of a little nugget here. On November 2nd, there's a lady in Gallipolis, Ohio, which is across the river from Point Pleasant. And 
she notices a flash in the sky, a cylindrical UFO type situation lands, two guys in suits get out of the spacecraft that lands in a parking lot and ask her some questions. In a bizarre dialect. I thought, were they Canadian? What kind of dialect are we talking about here? Oh, I hope so. That'd be glorious. <laughs> Not a different language, a bizarre dialect. I mean, if I'd never heard South African dialect before, maybe I'd be like, that is that is bizarre. So there are scores of UFO sightings along the Ohio Valley. We talked to another reporter. His name is Dave Patton. He's from the Huntington Herald-Dispatch. There are so many sightings. There's actually a special assignment desk that is created to handle all of this. So I don't know. That kind of tells me, would you say there's a frenzy going on in this area or a mania and everybody wants to be in and have a sighting at this point? Because that's sort of the vibe that I ended up getting. I'm like, it's almost exhausting to hear about how many of these sightings and shit like that there were. And there are a bastard right. It's not just like you're not seeing one thing. You're <laughs> You're seeing all kinds of different things. And I don't know if I think that means it's more credible or less credible. Right. I think it's hard because when you have multiple people who see the same thing at one time, that seems more credible, right? Because you think, unless they're all on the same drugs. But if you just have a couple of, of people out there saying, hey, we saw this, it was weird, versus random people every now and then coming in saying they saw something and they all very much sounds similar. But then again, there have been stories posted about this. So they've been reading the stories about it. So it's easy to mimic that and recreate that. So I don't know. Right. And especially when you think about, I think our brains have the ability, we see something strange, we don't know what it is. And so our brain fills it in with available information, whether that is, we're actually just seeing an owl, or we're seeing a seven foot man with a 12 foot wingspan. And he's got maybe a man head and maybe half a man body. I'm not sure. You know what I mean? Like I understand that like our fear drives us to like fill in some information. And I'm wondering if that's what's happening here, but I think it's really interesting. that You've got a lot of shit to choose from what your encounter is going to be. It could be the moth man himself. It could be the men in black. It could be a spaceship. It could be random helicopter red lights that run your dog off. I mean, we don't know. So I just found that part really interesting. So then we talked to a lady named Marcella Bennett. She and Catherine Wamsley go out to the TNT area to visit family. Like, and there's a couple other people here as well, but I didn't write all their names down. There's like a kid and somebody else. And it's just like a little group of family that's like, hey, we're going to go out and see my sister or whatever. So they drive by the big area in question. On the way back, they're walking out to the car. They see a light in the sky and Marcella reaches out for the door handle on the car then I think she kind of like glances over the top of the car and she sees the creature. (laughs) Obviously she's freaked out. She says it's winged. It is gray. She actually grabs her kid that's with her. She kind of turns to start back towards the house. I think there are the other people that are with her, her yelling for her to like run back to the house, but she finds she cannot move and she just sort of flops over on her kid. Like, so she's laying over her kid and she's like, my kid is like squirming and I can feel it, but I can't really do anything. So she stays like that for however long. And then they do make it back to the house. They are able to get the door locked, but the creature eventually hits up towards the door. So when she's retelling this, it does sound really dramatic. But when I read my notes back, I'm like, what the fuck happened here? Because it's so nonspecific. 
yeah, she gets to the house and they lock the door and the creature was banging on the door. That seems odd. That seems odd to me. Right, because in some cases it seems really not aggressive. And in these some of these cases, it sounds like a tacky aggressive. And I'm like, well, which is it? I mean, did that kid look real tasty? That could be the difference right there. Tiny kid. She said she knew it wasn't from this planet and it didn't live here. I'm like, it does now, Marcella. It fucking lives here now. It's been here for a while. I don't know what you're talking about. He moved on in. Deal with it. So, again, we go back to the North Power Plant. It's abandoned, but it sounds like there's a lot of sightings here and evidently no fences whatsoever. Well, I mean, that's it's a lot of area defense. I guess so. We hear from a guy named Bob Bosworth. He has an encounter. He's on a motorcycle ride with a buddy of his. Evidently, there's an extremely bright moon, which works out nicely. Is this riding their their choppers? I don't know if there were choppers, but that's a fun <laughs> word to say. Yeah. Through the area, it's so bright that they don't need their headlights, which I'm like, of course they didn't. Men, Jesus. Right? Yeah. No potholes for you. So they turn off the headlights. As they drive by the power plant, they see the red eyes on top of the power plant and they decide to explore because, again, why wouldn't you? Clearly all of these people are white. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Yes. You would never catch a brown person investigating this bullshit. They'd be like, no. Being so stupid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Terminal curiosity with the white folks of this area. So, again, the super, super bright moon. Daylight-like, if you would... So they're inside, they're walking amongst all the debris. They say the creature very purposely and deliberately walked towards them. He stayed in the shadow parts, but they could tell the shape of it was such that it looked very much like a robin. So think of like sort of a barrel chest action, like not really a neck, but like just a head sitting on the body. And again, with the whole gray stuff and blah, blah, blah. But I liked the detail that they heard the footsteps so they could hear it like creeping over the dusty bits. Well, I mean, maybe not the dusty bits because I don't know what kind of sound that makes, but there's like a crunching when it walks over the glass and stuff. So I liked that detail and I wanted to make sure that they called that out. But again, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily being aggressive other than it's just kind of walking towards them for a time. And then it just kind of like turns and pieces out. It's just like, man, I'm done with you guys. And it just like flies away. Yeah, can't be bothered with these two cats. Right. They did also mention that the eyeballs were not red, but they kind of decided that that was because there wasn't any light to reflect. Yes, because it stayed in the shadows. So one of the first articles was actually published on November 18th. And that's kind of when the Mothman hysteria starts going into full swing. And they talk about as the story grows, so does the, you know, curiosity around the TNT area. A lot of people venture out to try to find it. Again, it's such a white person thing to do. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, later they even talk about, I don't know, we'll get to it. Like people going back after they've already had a, a sighting, they go back and then they have another sighting and they're terrified. I'm like, why did you fucking go back? You know exactly what was going to happen. Do you get the feeling there wasn't anything else going on in this town? Pretty much, I'm guessing, in the mid-60s, there probably wasn't, no. And I suppose it's the spooky time of year, right? So it's the fall or whatever, so I don't know. Well, and maybe this is about the time that maybe LSD made its entrance into the the small town of Point Pleasant. (laughs) Could be. 
So Faye DeWitt, she's actually interviewed for this documentary. A lot of the descriptions we hear are from recordings from a while ago. But she talks about her and what sounds like about 100 different siblings went looking for the Mothman. They all pile into a car that they can fit into. Well, I mean, think about that, how big the cars were at this time. True. They weren't limited by, like, seat belts and stuff. Like... No. You could fit 10 comfortably in a car, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> she said as they were driving, she looks over. Her brother says, don't look over. So, of course, she looks over. And the Mothman was right beside the car window, like, keeping up with the car and she didn't know if it was running or flying but i'm gonna guess flying because we we heard how awkward it walks and runs so i i think your logic is warranted here yeah yeah when they stopped at one point it jumped onto the hood of the car and then it jumped onto the top of the building she said she didn't see the wings come out it just seemed to jump all right sure well it's very dark that's what we learned yeah yes and then she said the boys, her brother, start throwing coal at it. That seems like such a boy fucking thing to do. Like I said, there are some details and I'm like, yeah, that totally sounds legit. Like, they're like, oh, look, it's retreating. Let's fuck with it a little bit, right? Yes. Fucking boys. Fucking boys. So Peace almost hits the Mothman, I guess. And he's like, fuck all you, opens his wings and flies away. Right? <laughs> and she's funny. Number one. I love her accent. And number two, she talks about when he does open his wings, they're like the prettiest wings ever. And I'm like, oh, that's adorable. <laughs> right. She does have a very strong accent, which is what makes me think that when they say a bizarre dialect, it must have just sounded kind of normal and they just hadn't <laughs> heard that before. <laughs> yeah. As the sightings of the Mothman increased, so did the descriptions. At first, it was like just an abnormally large bird. And then, as we said, there was a man's head and then half a man. And who knows? Some people felt like it was trying to communicate with them. I would like to know if that was before or after the bridge collapse. Like if people looking back were like, it totally was trying to talk to me, right? Linda Scarberry said she saw the creature about 18 times after that first encounter. So they were friends at that point, I guess. And I think that they had that familiarity that she could she could tell that it was both sad and curious. And I'm like, <laughs> does it need a hug? I don't I don't know. I mean, the eyes are red. How much depth are are you getting from that? Is there I don't know. Well, and again, I think this comes back to like, so she probably got a ton of attention for the first sighting. Right. And so are we now feeding into that a little bit with these 18 sightings? I mean, that's a lot of sightings. I guess we should just be happy that no one was being hanged for being a witch for all of this because it's very similar to the witch trials. Yeah, I do love some of these other some of these other sightings. And so basically on the documentary, there's a timeline and they have written for you all these different sightings. So they're like panning through and like hitting on some a little bit harder than others. Not everyone got a awesome, you know, reenactment situation, but there was like. A guy that sees the creature on his neighbor's roof. There's a guy that's driving along the Ohio River and he sees it kind of just circling his car. Just not really. It's just kind of minding his own business. He said he felt like he got a pretty good look at it, but he also admitted going 75 miles an hour and just like kind of looking straight up through his windshield. So I'm like, how good of a look was it? Right. But I think it it does paint an interesting picture of like, these aren't like, the town alarmists that are doing all this. These are 
somewhat respected folks, maybe the people that you wouldn't always think would be the ones that are coming out of, you know, the woodwork to tell you about like the crazy thing they saw. So again, I can't decide if more sightings makes me feel more confident or less confident that this is all a thing. So Lawrence Gray, who's a school teacher, 19 at the time living with his wife. Lord, that's young. He says he woke up in the middle of the night and the Mothman was standing by his bed. So now it has opposable thumbs and can open doors. Okay. Listen, my mom said that we didn't have a chimney and Santa got into